Welcome back to Neurotech Pub. Today we'll be talking about the ethical considerations surrounding brain-computer interfaces. Who gets them? Who owns the data? And how can we extrapolate current trends and norms to anticipate the challenges and opportunities presented by BCI? I'm joined today by Tim Brown, a postdoctoral researcher in philosophy at the University of Washington, Lee Hochberg and Sidney Cash, neurologists at Mass General Hospital, and Amanda Postilnik, a professor of law at the University of Maryland. This discussion was a pleasure to moderate, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Just to get started, I was hoping everyone could could go around and introduce themselves. And then just to kick this off, I, because we're talking about ethics and, and by extension, a little bit of philosophy, I think it'd be really interesting if everyone shared one thing they believe or assert is true without evidence, something, some truth that you hold to be self um, that guides a lot of your own ethical decision. You know, for instance, if I were, I would say, hi, I'm Matt, I'm the CEO of Paradromics, and I believe that there's something special about human life. I don't have any factual basis for saying that a human life or human happiness is more important than the happiness or life of a giraffe. It's just something that I believe, and it guides a lot of my ethical framework when I when I look at BISA. Anyone else like to- Okay, I've got a weird one, but it's on point for this. I believe that our brains are not individual organs located inside our bodies. I believe that if we understand them properly, we're a super organism of connected brains, and that when we try to think of ourselves as individuals or try to create flourishing as individuals, we are not just in for a hard time, we are trying to do something that's, that may biologically be bad for us. Oh, can you also introduce? I, <laughs> that wasn't enough. <laughs> I'm sorry. My name is Amanda Postelnik. I'm a professor of law at the University of Maryland and the director of the program on pain at the Center for Law, Brain and Behavior at Mass General Hospital. And I'm thrilled to be here and meeting all of you. <laughs> so thank you. My name is Timoth Timothy Brown. I'm a postdoctoral scholar in the uh, philosophy department at the University of Washington. Um, I work on an NIH R01 funded project on agency and brain machine interfaces. Um, and I'm also a longtime contributor to the um, Center for Neurotechnology at University of Washington, um, where I did a lot of ethics engagement outreach type stuff, which was a lot of fun. Um, and okay, so what what is a self-evident moral commitment that I have? I don't know if this is going to be self-evident, and I think that's what's controversial about it, but I do believe that there are systems of oppression that we have not uncovered and those systems of oppression guide our research activities, our medical practices, and our consumer practices. And unless we uncover those systems of oppression, it's going to be hard to move forward in the ways that we want to. I know we're not supposed to be debating yet, but <laughs> I disagree with you in that I think that's just evidence-based. I mean, <laughs> I think you can just build a real case for that. It's not mm -hmm. like you're asking us to believe, what was it, uh, Lewis Carroll said, six impossible things before breakfast? Yeah. But I, I guess what he asserted is that there are even uncovered and unknown systems of oppression. So that's distinct from the ones that are known and well-documented. Fair enough. Systems below systems. Yes. 
Um, it, it turns into a kind of excavation. And we haven't unearthed even... Well, we really haven't even scratched the surface. Actually, can I make a motion that we just listen to Amanda and Tim for the next couple hours? <laughs> I, I think that's... I, I want to keep this going. Yeah, Lee, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm, at a, I'm a fish out of water here. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I hear my pager going off. Excuse me. The, uh, uh, I'm uh, Lee Hochberg. It's uh, great to be here. I direct the BrainGate Pilot Clinical Trials and, uh, and Consortium. Uh, together with Sid, direct the Center for Neurotechnology and Neurorecovery at Mass general uh, also professor of engineering at brown and and direct the va rnd center for neurorestoration and neurotechnology at the providence va and in terms of uh, without evidence uh, but deeply held beliefs uh, i think there's a lot more information embedded in the neural activity that we can record today than uh, we even know to think to look for and uh, that uh, uh, without evidence, belief drives a lot of my uh, kind of ethical thought process with respect to neural interfaces. Hi, I'm Sid Cash. I'm uh, also at Mass General Hospital. I'm an epileptologist uh, in the Department of Neurology, where I'm associate professor. Uh, like Lee said, I co-direct the Center for Neurotechnology and Neural Recovery. Uh, I spend a lot of my research time looking at intracranial recordings from patients who are in the hospital for clinical reasons. Uh, but yet are participating in various research endeavors. And uh, I don't have quite as um, uh, imaginative and exciting uh, thoughts on uh, empirically um, uh, or, or lack of empirically evidenced approaches or thoughts about the brain. Uh, but in terms of the ethics of what we do in BCI, I think that uh, and while there might be some evidence for this, I think the degree to which people and patients of all sorts are actually willing and interested in participating in uh, um, investigations, um, intentionally not saying clinical trials or things like that, but the degree to which they want to understand what's happening with them and with others is um, far larger far less uh, tapped and resourced than I think we really understand or, or, or manage in the, in the clinical world anyway. When I first heard about neuroethics, I have to admit my knee-jerk reaction was a little bit skeptical. And one of the things that I, I wondered, and I think a lot of BCI practitioners and other neurotechnologists wonder is, how is neuroethics distinct from bioethics, distinct from medical ethics, distinct from kind of theory of mind. What, what merits this new, this new phrase and this is a distinct discipline of study? I think that's a very difficult question. I think it's akin to the kind of question about neuroengineering. You could ask the same question about neuroengineering. How is it distinct from neuroscience? How is it distinct from... Um, from biotechnology in general, uh, why does it deserve its own lab space? And I think the answer will be similar. I think that um, neurotechnologies present um, unique but related uh, moral moral issues um, that have a place in uh, a medical ethics uh, discussion, have a place in a bioethics discussion. Um, have a place in a technology ethics discussion, but that's not where their home is. Um, so 
you know, what are the similarities between the controversies that we see with genetic testing in a variety of contexts, like consumer genetic testing, uh, prenatal genetic testing, they aren't the same as the ones that we run into for um, the collection of neural data. Um, but they are related. You know, we have like three companies that are, you know, putting together web services and cloud data storage services. And, you know, Amazon is one of them. And we know that Amazon is something of a weird player. Um, I'm, I'm being a little bit um, cagey here, but <laughs> um, and we see the same things happening with data collection for um, neurotechnology or neuroscientific purposes. Um, but the significance of that data is different, right? There's something ancestral about uh, genetic information necessarily, but there's something um, something related to a person's personality that they, or, or um, everyday activity uh, that you could tap into when it comes to neural data. So the reasons why they'd be salient to the average person who's trying to make consumer or medical or um, research decisions are just going to be different. Um, so I guess the short answer is it's complicated. Um, but um, neurotechnology, I think, presents its own set of unique issues. Yeah, it's interesting in, in analogy to neuroengineering if someone said, why does neural engineering exist as its own subdiscipline, I might say it's largely an intersectional issue that there are, but, but I wonder if neuroethics doesn't also have some, does it have some truly new issues that are raised? Or do you think it is, it is more similar to neuroengineering? Like, do you think that there's sort of substantively new things that come out of the field of neuroethics? I think so. I think there are substantively new things that do come out of neuroethics and they, in, in similar ways to neuroengineering, require multi- or transdisciplinary work. Um, so the idea that, you know, we're going to do certain kinds of biometrics, um, look for biomarkers of certain conditions, um, that's not a new concept. But when we uh, talk about it in the context of psychiatric treatment, automated psychiatric treatment... Um, we get some issues that sort of look like, you know, the issues we ran into with Prozac in the 70s. Um, but they they take on a life of their own. Um, like we were worried about, for example, and to use another analogy, we were worried about advertising and television in the 80s and 90s. Um, but we are even more worried about micro advertising in the age of Facebook and Twitter. Um, there's a certain added uh, problem that comes with this deep profiling that you see in this kind of technology. And I think that the problems that we see in neurotechnology um, and the, the problems that I'm worried about in particular that arise from bi-directional brain-computer interfaces, so systems that read and stimulate, um, are, I think, unprecedented. Um, imagine having a doctor in your head making decisions about you um, that are, you know, encapsulated biases from societal forces. Um, 
certainly like we'd be worried if doctors uh, gave people treatments that were based on their biases and we uh, with COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter there's a hyper awareness of that um, but you know imagine all of that just in a device in your head <laughs> and we call it Neuralink or something like this um, we don't we don't call it well we we don't um I'm not I'm not going to call I wasn't going to say call it Braingate because I have more faith in Sid and Lee. <laughs> so, um but yeah, I think I think there are unique issues here and I think that um that we have to, you know, exercise a little bit of moral imagination to get there and I think we haven't really scratched the surface yet. Um and it's going to take a huge transdisciplinary effort and I think I think we'll get there eventually. You know, Tim, I think you alluded in the many great points to one important one, many important ones too, uh, when you made the comparison to the uh, bioethical thought that's gone into the depth of information that exists in the genetic code. And we, so there's been a lot of biomedical ethics that has developed because of the great progress that we've made in genetics. And that he commented that there is, and I agree, that there's a difference. There's some important difference when we try to apply some of those same concepts to some, at least, of what's being developed in neuroengineering. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with time, that there's nothing in my genetic code that can tell either me or anybody else that my hand is about to reach for my coffee cup. I, th I think that's that statement is true. <laughs> the uh, uh, But it takes a tiny, tiny bit of neural data uh, to know that that's what I'm going to do in 20 milliseconds. And the, the immediacy of that information, the fact that I'm reaching for my coffee cup isn't terribly relevant, but the speed and the, the immediacy, the presence of those data and our ability to understand them, to act on them, and as you begin to describe, to potentially intervene on them, uh, I, I think really highlights you know, one place where, uh, where, where neuroethics has a, a lot to teach us. I think the other, the other major point that, that Tim alluded to is the bi-directional nature that we're heading towards. Uh, you know, getting the information out raises all sorts of thorny issues, no doubt. And then when you start to put information in, which changes things, then, then you get into even thornier issues. And we've been there before. We've been there with, with psychosurgery. We've been there with stimulation for homosexuality. We've been in these kinds of ugly areas in some ways. And we're getting nominally better and better at it, which is raising more and more questions about what's appropriate to do and what's not. I mean, Lee and I focus on very clear restoration of... Uh, of, of, of um, uh, deficits, restoration of dysfunction. Uh, there's not a lot of real questions there, but it's very easy to go from there to uh, places where there are questions, uh, changing people and who they are. I mean, I think that's what really separates, as as Matt, I think you 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 laid out in your um, opening, right? The the brain puts us in a whole different territory, right? It, it's it's what's unique about us in a way that's much more so than our liver or our heart or our lung. Uh, and once you start saying we're going to be able to mess with that in very particular ways, the ethical issues become, you know, really large and, and uh, largely 
unexplored, I would say. Tim, Tim and Amanda might say otherwise, but they, they, uh, I think they wouldn't. But, but I think that's really what it gets down to. We're changing. We're talking about what makes a person a person. Yeah, there's a recursive aspect to neuroethics that's absent in the others because the other areas of ethics and philosophy are predicated on the construct of a deciding self. It's a bit of an artificial construct, both the self and the idea that we have uh, free choice, but there is this tenable construct of the deciding self that is affected by these other domains. And then in neuroethics, it's about intervening in and shaping and uh, influencing that very deciding self that is taken as the basis for all of the other ones. So it's not that neuroethics is necessarily foundational, but it's more than just intersectional um, when it gets into the issues of self that, um, well, Tim, Lee, and Sid were talking about. A lot of the questions, um, a lot of the questions raised in neuroethics existed in an age of pharmacology. Um, when mental health was being treated by small molecules. Why is it intensified in the sort of new age of BCI and devices? What do we see as different about, I'm curious both from a, uh, a clinical standpoint and, and from maybe a more philosophical standpoint, why do we see devices as being distinctly different from, from molecules? Is it just that they could be more powerful or do we see another important distinction. There's a bunch of things I think that are different there. I think you, you raised a couple already. Precision is one of them. In theory and in practice, it's a much more focused approach. And um, I think that's a big issue uh, with it. And there's others as well. It's focused and, it, and it's personalized. It's, it's uh, part of that precision. That they, uh, one of my uh, teachers in med school in describing uh, most types of pharmacology, and particularly neuropharmacology, uh, said that if your you know, if your cars run out of gas, you don't pour the gas all over the vehicle in order to charge it back up. You try to put the gas in the tank. And I thought it was a great description, maybe uh, maybe a little bit too grandiose, but it was a great description for the challenges of of uh, using pharmacology, which undoubtedly has been incredibly effective uh, for many people with neuropsychiatric disorders, but when we're talking about neurotechnologies that have the ability to record from individual neurons to stimulate potentially uh, from ensembles of, uh, of neurons in a, in a spatial and temporal way uh, that it, it will uh, not be matched by pharmacology, that really opens up both tremendous potential and all kinds of interesting ethical questions. And from a prescribing point of view, clinicians, you know, historically been much more ready to try new medications rather than to, to undergo surgery or, or use a device. What, what do you see as the guiding principle there? And, and, and is that in flux? So where do you see this going in the next 10 years? So Sid and I are looking at each other at Zoom on Zoom here as we uh, as we try to decide uh, who can lure the other one to jump in and answer first. Uh, so 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 I think reversibility is probably the major one of the major differences. Um, in theory, many pharmacological interventions are reversible. You stop the drug, you stop the drug. Uh, that's not entirely true, obviously, but as a first approximation, it's it's reasonable. And I think that's how a lot of prescribers, uh, clinicians, caregivers think about it. And historically speaking, I think there's a different feel, certainly for surgery uh, and even for devices. Putting it in is uh, um, 
you know, seen as at least somewhat permanent. Now, that's also not entirely true. Many of the devices already being used uh, can be turned off, can be explanted, um, but it's sort of seen as a, a bigger step. I think that is, uh, you know, one at least sort of uh, cultural difference that slowly, it is slowly being overcome. I, I can tell you in the realm of uh, responsive neurostimulators for epilepsy, a larger and larger group of, of clinicians uh, these are used. These are devices that are used to um, stop and control seizures in patients who have intractable epilepsy. That is epilepsy that's not controlled by medications alone. And more and more, it's sort of being thought of as another step, another piece in the in the uh, in the um, uh, uh, therapeutic bin that one could use. Uh, even though it might not be the ultimate approach, you could try and use it, get some more information, and then decide from there. That's a bit of a change, I think, from where we were where we think a device is, you know, you only do that as the absolute last resort. Along that lines, um, I'm going to be playing a few clips for you from various people who have come on the podcast, and and I've asked them if they had uh, sort of ethical questions uh, to ask at our ethics meeting. And one of the questions that relates to kind of prescribing and, and to kind of patient autonomy and the ability to get devices, um, this question comes from Vanessa Tolosa, who is asking about uh, when does the patient get to decide? Yeah, I'm curious. I don't know if this is already being answered in the medical field for in other applications, but how much does the patient have um, a say in whether they get a device implanted or not, a patient or someone that speaks for them? So say it kind of relates to what Thomas was saying. Say there's a company that's touting um really great things about their device and which has gotten the patients like really excited and interested, but there's a lot of questions by experts on mm. that. Like when does a patient have that right to say, no, I want it versus. Yeah. Yeah, are you talking clinical trial now or are you talking an on as a product device? Or as a pro just, okay. you know, yeah. I, I guess any, any brain implant, like whether mm -hmm. clinical trial or product, like can they demand it? I should say Vanessa was um, one of the leading technologists and the founding team of Neuralink. And now she's a consultant that works in, in neurotechnology for a number of other companies. Depending on the time point in the development of the technology, and I, I think she was referring to, to many of those steps in, in, her, in her questions, the guiding answer, at least in, in the U.S. medical system, is that the, the patient or if that patient is unable to speak for themselves, somebody who is providing a substituted judgment and, and speaking on behalf of that patient, that the, the guiding sense that autonomy rules and it is the patient's decision whether they're going to have any procedure performed, that wins. It is what drives uh, nearly every medical decision. Uh, the, 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 the days uh, of uh, so-called paternalism uh, of decades ago uh, have been greatly, greatly reduced and, uh, and some would argue perhaps reduced to excess. Uh, but the uh, so at a first pass, certainly when we're thinking about clinical trials, uh, surgical procedures are performed with informed consent. But but I think her question isn't going in a different direction, which is what if a patient wants a device that the physician. When we get to that point, so we have an approved technology. Uh, the at that point, there's some more market force. I think that appears. There's. Uh, even if somebody has a right to a technology, that doesn't mean that somebody else has a duty to provide that technology. And I will I'll look to, my, to the ethicists on the call to, uh, to put a finer point on that. 
the uh, but you know once something's available, if it's actually uh, if it's actually serving a use, uh, then in all likelihood there is going to be somebody who's willing to uh, to provide that technology. Uh, so I uh, so I, I see uh, uh, Tim is ready. Yeah, I'll I'll jump in. I'll jump in here. Um, I I conducted a number of interviews with people using deep brain stimulation for uh, essential tremor. And one of the things that I've found with one of the research uh, or uh, interviewees was that there are roadblocks there. So if a person um, demands the technology, if they demand the, the surgery, the device, they can't necessarily get it immediately, right? So in the case of essential tremor, um, a person has to go through a regiment of medications, right? Um, they have someone has to make the diagnosis that their their essential tremor um, is refractory. It's it resists treatment, um, and so only after going through a number of drugs, a number of interventions, a number of therapies, lots and lots of meetings with neurologists and surgeons and so on and so forth, can they get that technology? And in a lot of cases, that's a good thing because you don't want to get the device get a device implanted when um, a, a much cheaper intervention would have worked. These devices are expensive, after all. And um, I won't say that drugs in the United States are inexpensive, but they are certainly less expensive than like the, the newest device from <laughs> uh, Medtronic or Boston Scientific or Neuropace. Um, and so... There are there is at least one person in my study that says I wish I could have gotten this first. Yeah, you, you know, I, I, Sid, I hope is going to jump in in a moment. I, to your point of that, there's this long, potentially long period of having to go through several medications or several evaluations and having all of these clinicians that are involved in allowing that gate to be opened, even if there's somebody who's demanding the technology. Um, I, I think I heard you say that that's generally a good thing. It's a good thing if that group that is the who are the gatekeepers, if you will, are properly calibrated to when that technology should really be applied. And there are, as as in any other endeavor, uh, there's there are conservative approaches to providing newer technologies. There are uh, leading edge approaches and first adopter approaches. And uh, in general, people get their medical care locally. And, uh, and and whether locally means really uh, the physicians and therapists who live in their town or in their city, maybe locally also means at the nearest academic medical center, but it's uh, none of those are necessarily representative of the unquote right answer. Uh, and uh, and I, I think epilepsy is one realm where there's really a wide range of approaches to this, and uh, I'd be interested in hearing what Sid uh, Sid's thoughts are. Yeah, I I, I think you're. You've both hit on really interesting issues. I think in addition to cost, by the way, I think it's important to recognize that there's also a risk. And it sometimes comes down to the clinicians uh, saying, boy, we're, we're, we're more worried about this than the patient is. Uh, and it really doesn't feel right for us uh, to go ahead and do procedure X, Y, or Z, even though the patient seems to want it, uh, because we're worried it's actually going to cause problems. And we've, we've, you know, made that clear to the patient, and yet they're still 
pushing for it, uh, that's, I think, a really uh, troubling and challenging situation, and one that we've all probably been in at various times. And, and um, so besides the cost and so on, I think there's lots of other reasons why uh, patients might want something, uh, but maybe it's not, uh, or maybe the physicians don't feel like it's, it's appropriate to go forward with it. Isn't epilepsy a great example, though, because there's so many anti-epileptic medications? How would you know if they're refractory? It could turn into a kind of justice-delayed-as-justice-denied situation. Right, and, and, there's, uh, and there's historically there's been an issue about that. The time between uh, first onset of seizure and surgery has been thought by, by many people to be way too long because you could spend lots and lots of time going through those going through those medications. And uh, just getting to, to Tim's earliest point, you also have some, some real potential inequities and structural problems here uh, along all sorts of lines, right? Uh, uh, Lee sort of was, was talking about this. It could, you know, your care is local. So if you're in rural America versus uh, in Boston, uh, you might have a very different set of options. And if you're in America versus, you know, third world country, you have a different set of options. If you're you know, certain ethnic groups, certain age groups, etc., you're going to have you know, very different access to these kinds of technologies. And uh, uh, that's going to come and play a big role as well. And, and uh, ways, you know, there's some real ethical issues there, uh, no doubt. You know, and that's, you know, one of the, I'm going to try and push things a little bit into the speculative zone, if you don't mind here, Matt, but, you know, we were talking earlier about what, what things can happen. You know, what, what, what happens when we get to the stage where it's not just people like Lee and I uh, fixing broken brains, but we're pushing the brains to even to, to other levels and then who gets it, right? And, and then everybody, want, you know, if we're, Heck, if, if Lee had an implant that would make me actually remember things, uh, you know, we I'd go for it in a second, right? But uh, do, should I get that? How you know what 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 makes it possible for me to get that compared to somebody else? Yeah, I the I, I hope that we get to that uh, more speculative discussion in a moment. I just want to underscore one of uh, Sid's themes, which is that this the the risk benefit equation that we all hope is central to the decision of whether to take any particular medicine or to uh, begin to use any particular device, certainly to have a surgery, to have any uh, particular device place. Uh, in, in order to make that equation, one needs to decide what is the risk and what is the benefit. And any individual patient or particular user of these technologies may have a very different way of looking at both risk and benefit than the group of clinicians who are simultaneously involved in helping to make that same decision. And when this comes back to the questions of autonomy or the premise of autonomy, we really do commonly want to rely upon the risk benefit uh, decision making of the individual who's exploring a therapy. And the the conflicts, if you will, or the friction certainly comes up uh, when the, the individual who's seeking therapy has a different sense of that uh, of that balance than uh, perhaps a, a team of clinicians that are helping to, uh, to guide them. Amanda, is there, you know, a kind of a relevant case or what, what's legally controlling here when, when uh, patients don't see eye to eye with their clinicians? Um. I'm going to do the thing that politicians do and answer a slightly different question. Before. Okay. <laughs> so because actually they're closely related. I think the answer to your question depends on how are we segmenting the kinds of technologies that we're talking about and their benefits. So um, in the comments that everybody's made so far, you, everyone's been gesturing toward 
the difficult to discern sometimes difference between a therapeutic and an enhancement. We might wind up having different markets um, for therapeutic things that are categorized as therapeutics th versus things that are categorized as enhancements. Um, but uh, Sid's point about memory is a perfect illustration that something can be both even within the same domain. It's just where's the baseline and how are we norming it? So if it's a question just about if, if it's, and then it also segments by price and by risk. Um, so if we're talking about a relatively low risk procedure um, that is in the nature of an enhancement, so it's not going to be as tightly regulated, you'll have a model that looks a lot more like plastic surgery um, okay. and where there's a lot more medical tourism as well to markets that may be less concerned about that very careful risk benefit analysis and where you know, your, your purchasing power may go farther. Um, if we are talking about um, a clear therapeutic, uh, then we're in more familiar medical territory of cost and risk versus benefit. And cost really has to do with how we pay for things um, and, and what the insurance companies uh, determine, probably in negotiation with the BCI companies, um, at what point is it a worthwhile trade-off? And that is partly a medical and economic decision, partly probably a sort of political slash horse trading kind of decision too. Um, I haven't worked at an insurance company, but I've had a peek in a little bit. Um, the, the very general standard of when can a patient consent or not consent um, has a lot to do with, uh, I, I'm not, I should not, I, I have not practiced medical ethics in a hospital, but my understanding is that ethicists and physicians uh, in practice want to see that the patient can make a rational choice. There's a famous case of a patient who had a gangrenous limb that was surely going to cause them to die in short order, unless it was amputated. And the patient was asserting simultaneously that they didn't want to die, but they refused the surgery because they couldn't grasp that it was an either or choice. If the patient had been able rationally to say, I'd rather die than have an amputation, that would have been the determination. If they had instead rationally said, I choose to live, but I know I can't keep my limb, that would have been the determination. But when there's a, a failure of rationality that sh frequently shows up through an impossible contradiction or where the patient can't pass sort of more typical uh, cognitive tests and, and an interview with a psychologist or a psychiatrist, then we're looking for a substitute decision maker. And, and in medical ethics, as long as we're talking about truly medical products, there's a pretty robust framework um, within ethics already. Do you think that framework will be tested when we're, uh, when we're talking about sort of medical devices and surgery? I mean, they're, especially given the history of like transorbital lobotomy, electroconvulsive therapy, um, there's been some, I mean, in the last decades, there's been some precedent of medicating patients against their consent or committing them um, if they meet certain criteria. But would the standards for performing a therapeutic surgery or implanting a device be dramatically different than forcing someone to take, you know, anti-hallucinogenic uh, anti-psychotic medication? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, mm -hmm. I love this question uh, in part because I'm concerned that the approach that we've taken toward pharmaceuticals has left more people untreated and suffering than necessary. There's 
uh, uh, public perception um, driven very much by the anti-psychiatry movement of the 60s and 70s and the horrible excesses with lobotomy that you're talking about, that people can be forced into medication. In fact, it's an incredibly difficult process. Um, it requires a court order. Uh, most hospitals are understandably not willing to go to court. And even then, most emergency medication orders are quite brief so that a person may not be restored to what we would think of as ordinary decision-making before they are voluntarily allowed to discontinue. Some states do have these programs called assisted outpatient commitment. Um, famously, New York has Kendra's Law. Mm -hmm. But these programs are um, very much in the minority throughout the US. And so the real coercion, I think, with psychiatry, uh, and I had the honor of writing with Alan Francis about this, who chaired the DSM-4, the real coercion is that people are coerced by their illnesses into these really difficult lives. And even when they seek treatment because of the starving of budgets of state psychiatric systems, they're denied they're denied access. So there's, um, there's a real liberatory benefit potentially to these medications that people largely can't get. So um, your question, of course, is really about what's the potential for uh, overriding patient will or patient consent with an implantable device. The reason I'm talking about medication first is that it won't be the case that medication is comparatively easy and devices will be harder because it's already the case that getting somebody on medication, which as you said, is theoretically reversible and certainly doesn't require surgical intervention, that that's already really, really hard, um, almost impossible uh, for families whose loved ones are in crisis. And so um, it would seem to me to be that much more attenuated and unlikely that a person could be required to submit to an interventional procedure. But then there is the trickiness of the concept of consent. Mm -hmm. If it could be offered to somebody as an inducement, this will shorten your punishment. This will allow mm -hmm. you to be out with an ankle monitor or some other sort of technological monitor versus a lengthy sentence in really difficult conditions in a state prison or a state psychiatric hospital. Then a person might have the so-called freedom to opt into that, but that is in no sense a free choice. And, and that's the domain where I might worry about it a bit more. This, this also worries me. It worries me a great deal um, because we run into all kinds of problems with consent within the carceral system. And those, those problems with consent are, are, they intersect with the, the very difficult problems we face with uh, racial inequity in this country um just speaking from a, a united states context um i know that things are different in other countries but i do know that um colonialism is a problem that many countries face and uh they're gonna have versions of this problem uh black people are overrepresented in prisons and so when we ask the question, who's going to face um, these very difficult uh, decisions about what they should consent to, uh, what they're being coerced into, um, and what they want to do about their, about their freedom, if they want to 
opt into something um, so that they can be free. Um, people of color are going to run into that problem much more often than white folks are. And I think any analysis of this, uh, of this, these problems have to, you know, at some point confront uh, racial inequity. Um, because I know lots of people who've been to jail. That's just what it means to be black in America. I know lots of people who've been in this very situation. But if I talk to my white colleagues and friends, they don't know very many people who've been in that situation. Um, if I can get a little bit personal, um, I, I have a brother that's been to prison, uh, is in prison right now. And he's not the only one in my family who's been to prison or is in prison right now. Um, and upon release, upon being released to parole, um, he had to agree to take medications uh, for his so-called uh, psychiatric conditions. I don't know what his specific diagnoses are, but he didn't take the pills. He just collected them. Um, they were uh, a reminder that he was not free. <laughs> Or at least they were a reminder to me that he was not free, uh, that he still had some uh, some court intervention in his life. Um, and so this is a difficult problem. How will neurotechnology intersect with these already difficult problems that people of color face in uh, in this country when they when they collide with the criminal justice system? Um, there's a healthy, uh, robust debate over what people are calling mandatory neurointerventions in, in prisons. Uh, just just um, sort of recounting the history of psychosurgery um, and how, say, for example, someone who was considered a moral deviant because they were a homosexual uh, was court-ordered to you know, undergo um, hormonal therapy or... Alan Turing is a very famous and very uh, shameful example. Yeah, yeah, he killed himself for, over this. Um, and that's a very difficult history to confront because it's ongoing. Um, we do have um, a prison industrial complex in the United States. And it's frightening to think what will happen when, you know, um, some technology like trans, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation um, is demonstrated as an effective treatment for anything um, and used widely in prisons for psychiatric conditions? Um, you know, will, will it be, will it be uh, you know... As simple as someone being told, hey, stick your head in this box and you'll get a few years taken off your sentence. I could easily imagine that. Um, we don't need a Black Mirror episode for that. I'm really glad that you brought up this idea. One of the other questions that we have from one of our previous guests um, broaches the, the idea of, of social inequity, but from a different... Gilja Vakash is a professor at UC San Diego. How can we as researchers... Uh, be proactive in ensuring equitable dissemination of neurotechnology. Um, uh, you know, in the near term, we're, we're talking about access to medical devices, 
And in the longer term, we don't know. We don't know where it's going to go. Uh, so what can we do now uh, to avoid um, you know, societal ails? I'm glad uh, Vikash got there because that's exactly where uh, I, w I was headed as well. And uh, I, I think we, uh, we we teach the same thing in our respective neuroengineering classes and uh, and make sure that our students think about these uh, uh, these really important questions. The the other side of this uh, of this concern is we all hope that the technologies that are being developed are actually going to be helpful, that they're going to restore communication, they're going to restore mobility, they're going to provide an opportunity for somebody whose mental health uh, may vacillate from one of general health and well-being to one of uh, uh, mania or depression. Or, uh, or, or cognition and direction that they, uh, that they wish it, uh, it wasn't headed. And so the goal for these technologies is, uh, is to restore health and to restore function. And we wanna make sure that they are equally accessible. And that is not always the case. It is often not the case. Uh, and that is, it, it may be no more true for an emerging neurotechnology than it is for any advanced medical care or medical procedure. But that doesn't, that, that only underscores the challenge. And I, I do think because uh, we're all here talking about this and, and Matt, you've, uh, you've facilitated others talking in this realm uh, as well. And of course, there's a wonderful uh, neuroethics uh, initiative as, as part of the, the NIH Brain Initiative. As these technologies develop, it's conversations like this, and it's the emphasis on ensuring that the benefit of these technologies are equally distributed, that are incredibly important. And, uh, and this doesn't uh, just fall to, uh, to society. This really does that the engineers, the neuroscientists, uh, the clinicians who are beginning to develop these technologies and are working on them, uh, you know, I think we, uh, collectively have a role in ensuring that uh, that these technologies are ultimately available. I think I'll also jump in to say that um, these problems of equitable uh, distribution um, also hinge on, you know, addressing longstanding distrust of technologists, big tech. I'm not going to say that people um, <laughs> are not justified in how much they distrust big tech um, and also of the medical apparatus. Right. And, you know, we're seeing it even more now than ever uh, that, you know, <laughs> the conspiracies going around about uh, the COVID vaccine being um, a Bill Gates funded ploy to Im implant chips into people Um Amanda, you're making a face <laughs> because it's absurd. It's absurd. It really is. Um, but it's absurd because we all know that George Soros is the real master man behind. Or um, well, who who is behind the Dominion uh, Hugo voting fraud? Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez. From from oh, the yeah. grave. From the grave. His his spirit moves chips into vaccines, and it's absurd. It's uh, so, but but a lot of people are worried about the medical apparatus and how it's failed them in the past and how there are potential hiccups for them in, in their lives. Um, you know, there, there are difficult epistemic challenges for anyone who goes to the doctor. He might be dismissed out of hand or not listened to. Your testimony might be uh, misinterpreted. And especially for people of color in this country, for women in this country, um, 
you know, going to the doctor is at times a belittling experience. And to say, you know, okay, how are we going to distribute these technologies justly? Um, uh, maybe I could flip that question on its head and ask, how are we going to convince anybody to use these technologies in the first place? Besides, you know, um, intrepid white guys who want to test the newest, newest technology. I don't know, Tim. I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you on the medical side and this, this issue of trust and respect. Yes. Um, and in the branch of law and neuroscience that I've focused on the most with chronic pain, that really disproportionately affects minority communities and women and intersectionally women of color, mm -hmm. um, not being believed for their pain, not getting the treatment they need, being suspicious of being used as guinea pigs for different kinds of interventions. But there's going to be a vast area of BCI development. I mean, it's, it's already starting where it feels like fun. It's consumer oriented. It's built into a gaming system. It offers to enhance your performance in some way that's attractive to you. Maybe not just your meditation and your sleep, but elevates your mood or, or enhances sexual function or something really fun that people want. And then I think, although there will still be issues about how it plays out through social structure because we never leave social structure behind. Across populations, people will think less about their privacy and the risks and whether they trust the institutions and who's really holding their data and they're likely to adopt it because we see this kind of avid consumer behavior even as to the companies that we say we distrust. You know, I'm gonna bash uh, the lack of privacy on social media uh, yeah, in my yeah. Facebook post, right? Um, That's right. Yeah. And then all of that ancillary information that can be collected will come back with different ramifications for communities that are less advantaged and that are more subject to surveillance. Because I think the, the overarching uniting theme for whether it is a medical technology that invites more distrust or a consumer-focused technology that invites enthusiastic adoption is that we're never apart from social structure. All of the, we might call technologies disruptive and in some ways they are. You know, the mm -hmm. car disrupts the horse and buggy. Um, the freezer disrupts the ice man. And yet they're never totally disruptive because by being released into cultures with their particular advantages and structural problems and structural inequalities and sets of institutions, they're going to reinforce and be absorbed into all of those same patterns. Right. And we should predictably expect that. Which is, means that this is the right time to be talking about it and planning for it. As no, you know, in your work. Um, yeah. <laughs> We've mentioned data a few times and uh, Chathan, who's a professor at Emory University had a question about data and how we might extrapolate based on how our data is being used right now to the kind of peril we might face in a, in a widespread BCI. Had a, an, an orthogonal concern for us all to worry about. I, you know, I think um, when, at least when I got into BCI, uh, the, the idea is, as Conrad is sort of saying, the idea of using BCI for, for healthy people was a little bit ridiculous because who would, who would want the type of control that you were able to see 10 years ago? Um, 
I, I guess one of the things that keeps me up at night a little bit is, uh, you know, we've seen over the last few years, especially um, uh, misuse of private data. Uh, you know, let's say Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, for example, just, you know, uh, really just egregious misuse. And so if that can happen when the data is all external and it's social media, what can happen when those data are your your thoughts that you are not trying to communicate to anybody. God, it's um, a good thing that Facebook doesn't have a BCI program. <laughs> Chathan was uh, speaking uh, to my opening salvo, <laughs> if you will. The uh, I, This is so important. The, the data that are in the neural data are extensive and they are more than we currently understand. So even, so there is a really important, valuable uh, effort to expand the sharing of data across all of science. Uh, open science, make data available, allow others to analyze it, uh, allow progress to be made more quickly uh, by crowdsourcing the opportunity rather than to keeping data that's collected in one lab uh, there uh, for, for decades. The, and all of that makes great sense. Uh, the, one of the many challenges is, at least today, uh, for good reason, we obtain informed consent when people enroll in clinical trials and we do our very best to describe how data are gonna be shared. And it isn't so straightforward to describe what could happen if we widely share data, the contents of which we don't fully appreciate today. And it, there's, you know, in our own uh, research, you know, under, <laughs> under carefully controlled conditions, if we ask somebody who is uh, tetraplegia due to a brainstem stroke, for example, to, uh, to watch a cartoon of, a, of an arm moving, and then we ask them to imagine that they're moving their arm the same way, and then we ask them to attempt to move their arm the same way, uh, uh, those are three very different activities, even though there may be no outward evidence that they're different activities, but the neural data and the neural data from a few dozen neurons out of 88 billion, so just a few dozen neurons, we can easily determine whether that person was just watching, was just watching that current cartoon or imagining or attempting to move their own limb. Those are, that's a lot of information about what that person is, unquote, thinking at the moment. And uh, it, that's a, perhaps a really boring example in a lot of ways, but even though we may be studying direction, you know, intended movement of, of an arm, those firing rates, those neural activity patterns, uh, we have every reason to believe that there's gonna be some difference in those activity patterns depending on the medication that somebody may be taking. Uh, that in many ways is the reason that some of those medications are being taken. Uh, for example, as Sid, who I'm looking at at the moment, knows that somebody who may be taking a benzodiazepine is going to have a different EEG profile than uh, often than somebody who's not. Uh, and uh, it, it doesn't take that much skill to be able to look at the two different uh, neural signals and to distinguish that. So if we're seeing what medication somebody is on, if we're seeing uh, more context in the neural activity than we might expect uh, just by a quick glance at it, well, we have to begin to wonder what else is what else is in there. 
Uh, is there information about uh, cognition? Is there information about uh, intelligence? Just to really go uh, you know, far down the line here. What are we going to learn about the people who have been so extraordinarily generous in joining us in these pilot clinical trials that from their neural data that they may or may not have wanted uh, shared? And then how do we consent them to share that anyway in advance? <laughs> uh, it, that's, that's a challenge. And one way to solve that challenge is to say, well, maybe all of those data today shouldn't be as widely available uh, as other scientific data. And, and this is posed as a question, not as, not as a statement. And it's particularly important because in, uh, at least in today's intracortical BCI research, uh, the individuals often become known. Uh, we're not talking about hundreds or thousands of people in a clinical trial. Uh, it, today, there's about a couple dozen. But Lee, you could go. You can go even beyond that. Uh, data from intracortical devices already in clinical use, already recording. That data is becoming property of the company that's making the device. Um, and if everything you say is true in these, in, you know, in, which I think it is, in these trials, we we're talking about a couple of people. It's likely to be true in already clinical uses where we're talking a couple thousand people. Uh, I mean, I think we're, we're already there. We're already at Chatham's point to some extent where this question becomes real uh, in, in many ways. Yeah, it's an interesting choice of business models. I think that um, technologists and also entrepreneurs and venture capitalists in deciding which companies to invest in can have a role in shaping the industry as being ethical. Companies can adopt privacy first practices. If we're talking about um, a wearable device or aspects of an implant where it's possible to do edge computing so that you don't centralize all of the data or a company decides, not talking about research and data sharing, which is another complicated, interesting problem that I know less about than Sid and Lee. Um, companies can decide that they're not going to become data businesses and that they're not going to keep their users' data past a certain point. They can have sunset provisions on how they keep it. So there are really many choices that can be made before law and policy, just in terms of uh, commitment to certain kinds of principles of privacy in design that uh, technologists could adopt today. And that is a really, a really important ethical contribution where I think um, individual ethics of technologists and business people and investors has less potential is on the critical issues that Tim was pointing toward about once the device is taken up into society, you really can't architect around disparate impact on different populations. But to ask, to ask you a loaded question, Amanda, is that actually how you think things are going? I mean, I, given what we see in other industries where data, data is worth more than gold. Uh, in fact, data is worth more than the product. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine. I mean, I, I'm just curious whether you've seen any evidence that that is that kind of self-control um, self is actually happening. I, I, I would argue that what I see is sort of the opposite of it, but, but I don't know. So I know two cases, and they may well be the exceptions that prove the rule, and just relying on individual ethics to shape an entire 
really important industry has to be inadequate. The two cases I know of are um, a company, full disclosure, my sister is their director of business development. Uh, it's called Health Rhythms and they use multiple sensor signals uh, as a kind of psychiatric early warning dashboard. Um, and their, their goal is to create a kind of a blended care model between clinicians and patients. Um, and the other one is uh, David Eagleman's company, Neosense, uh, Neosensory, excuse me, that um, tries to translate, that does translate uh, auditory signals into vibrations for hearing impaired people. Um, and then they're, uh, they, they learn to decode these vibrations as if they were sound. He said they decided not to keep um, or to, to not keep as much patient data as possible or client data as possible. But um, those two examples show me that it's possible, not necessarily that it's likely or that that should be a dominant strategy for what we do here. Yeah, I think that it most likely won't be the dominant strategy, but you can see some of the big players approaching their own technologies outside of the neurotech space um, that way. I know Apple famously uh has principles in place to not keep keep data longer than a certain amount of time and to do processing not in the cloud but locally this has been apple's game for a long time uh to put neural processing in their uh system on chip um, on the iphone on the watch on all of their devices so that they can do um, what amazon does what google does locally um, instead of in the cloud but simultaneously, um, cloud computing is a democratizing force. Um, if you have a startup company idea um, and you only have so much venture capital, um, it's very economical to go to Amazon Web Services and get their cloud storage and get their, um, their computing platform set up for your purposes. Um, and that means that the data is going to be out there. It's going to be out there somewhere. It's, and, you know, it's easier to share the data. It's easier to glean certain kinds of insights from it. And this is, uh, I guess, a segue into something that I'm worried about when it comes to data sharing. I'm, um, I'm fairly worried about um, the sh uh, free sharing of data with, with folks. Um, um, but I'm also worried about the specific insights that they'll try to arrive at. Um, I'm worried that the neurotech space is a space where we're going to be pressured to make certain conclusions about the data, um, ontological conclusions about what we're looking at, what kinds of salient features there are in the neural data, um, as we come, try to come up for biomarkers of conditions, biomarkers of, of mental states, biomarkers of, you know, things that aren't neural states, like Lee mentioned, you know, whether or not a person has taken drugs or not. Um, I think those are, those are the spaces where we should be worried. Um, because in other adjacent technologies, so for, this is the example I like to go to, um, uh, facial recognition and emotion recognition from facial recognition data, uh, from facial data, um, we see people making conclusions or um, fixing ontologies of emotions. So these are the kinds of emotions that exist. Um, happiness, sadness, fear, etc. 
Um, and there are only seven of them, and there's an entire uh, psychiatric enterprise behind it. Um, but will I be recognized in that framework? Will I be recognized by that ontology? Is that the right ontology? Um, and when we think about things like early warning systems for psychiatric disease, um, it, that, that pull from the neural data to reach conclusions about us, um, will they operate with the right ontologies? Um, and will anybody know what ontology they're contributing to when they contribute their data to it? And I don't think they can. And I think this goes back to what Lee was saying earlier about it being very hard to write an informed consent document to get informed consent in general, uh, because we have to do this almost impossible imaginative work, this moral imaginative work to figure out what's salient and what's not. Um, and, make sure that people are informed of that. Um, and in some ways it's unfathomable um, until we get closer. But I don't want to say it's impossible. Um, I want to say that there are certain things that we should we should do to safeguard ourselves against um, more obvious and less obvious uh, problems, like working with communities that have been, you know, uh, historically uh, marginalized in this space, right? Like... Um, don't make systems that call women hysterical. Like that's, that's a thing <laughs> just to say it bluntly. Um, but yeah, th this, these are the kinds of worries I'm worried about when it comes to, uh, the sharing of neural data. Can I ask a question on the sharing of neural data? Um, have you heard of the global brain data initiative and what do you think of third party data, uh, strong boxes or, or sharing systems? I'm not familiar. Is anybody else familiar with it? I'm familiar with it, but I haven't dug into it enough to um, give initial impressions. Could you give us a little bit more? Sure. I'm, I don't know that much about them. I am starting to learn about them. If you don't mind, I'm going to... Can we come back to that in yeah. a few minutes and I'll give you a, a better summary? I just have to check a Perfect. note that I have with their founder. I, I won't give Amanda any time, though, because I, I have a question for her now related to... Uh... <laughs> to, to, to data and specifically what if any privilege brain data enjoys and just by kind of way of uh, let's say anecdote if, if I do something I shouldn't have and I'm pulled into court and asked to talk about it I can say no thing the, the government doesn't have the right to query my brain using my but if I suffer from a memory death and I have to write everything down in a notebook to remember it's much less clear what the standards are for seizing the note. Um, and certainly if I have it in my cell phone, there are examples of people being forced to cell phone password. How will a brain computer interface be when, you know, a part of a person's cognitive process is, is kind of uploaded onto a device? Do we have any idea how that would be treated? Can we find good cases? Well, I'd as Americans tend to treat the constitution as if it were a religious document. And yet it doesn't offer us nearly as much protection as most of us think that it does. In particular, uh, the Supreme Court has not been called on in any substantial way and therefore hasn't developed a jurisprudence around the physical instantiation of what we might think of as our mental or neurological self. It's been able to get by on uh, a pretty, um, 
uh, underdeveloped uh, physical mental duality where prior case law has held that that which is physical is not protected by the Fifth Amendment and um, that which is mental and testimonial is protected by the Fifth Amendment. So you can invoke your right to be silent and sit there and say nothing, but we can, we could potentially use affect recognition software and have your face tell the story when we show you the picture of the victim, right? Um, and if you're not the suspect, you're not the one under investigation, you don't have a Fifth Amendment right anyway. But the products of the body have not been given protections. So uh, pursuant to a warrant, a person's blood or breath or urine or pursuant to a warrant exception can incriminate them. So I don't have to tell the police, yes, I've been drinking, but they may be able to compel a blood sample from me. And my blood will say that I've been drinking even more effectively than I could speak it myself, especially if I'm really drunk. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But when we talk about neural data, it's um, a really interesting hybridization of those two maybe false categories to begin with, because it's the physical stuff of that which allows us to infer what the person in some senses is thinking or what their physical state is as represented by their brain. Um, I was talking to a company also based out of uh, MGH, I think, that is developing an FNIRS technology to develop, uh, to, excuse me, detect THC intoxication. Hmm. And uh, they hope to sell it uh, to law enforcement, understandably, because they're there really aren't good markers for driving while high in the same way that there are for driving while drunk. Um, And as a sidebar, there's a a potential equity improving story with this device because officers are notoriously biased in who they pull over for being high and who they conclude when when they're talking to them is or isn't high. So maybe a technology could be better, although it may present issues of its own. But anyway, I would say that uh, the signals picked up by an Efner's device would have no special protection at this point, just because it's neurological data and probably less protection than um, blood, saliva, or urine. The standard for whether your physical products can be seized by the state uh, or searched by the state is governed by the Fourth Amendment. What is your reasonable expectation of privacy balanced against the state's need? It's a a pretty uh, flexible a test that is less protective than most people think. And when it comes to the physical body, uh, jurisprudence has emphasized the degree of physical imposition that the state puts upon a person, not the amount of informational imposition or imposition on autonomy, selfhood, dignity. So we have more protection against a blood test because it involves a needle puncture through the skin than we would at this point for a non-invasive device that can pick up certain types of neurological signals. Some of the most important cases there I remember were to do with bullets and retrieving bullets for med- forever. You're absolutely right, the Winston case, um, where uh, um, the state wished to require uh, a surgery to extract a bullet to see if they could match it for ballistics purposes. And this excuse me, the Supreme Court held that that was too substantial an imposition 
But what's really interesting about that case is that it's not an absolute rule. It doesn't say, no, the state may never subject a person to surgery, um, even if they need a ballistics match. Instead, it says, well, they didn't need the evidence that much. And the surgery probably would have had the following risks. And so it leaves the door open for the balance to go in the other direction if the need is heightened or the risk is lessened. Same thing with the, the Kilo case, which has to do with remote surveillance, which may be more like some future uh, EEG-based system, mm-hmm. where Justice Scalia wrote that um, the use of these thermal imaging cameras to look into a home in part is prohibited because it's an unusual technology. Um, we expect that our homes can't be looked into, but uh, this technology violates that expectation, so we're protected against it. Now that cars with cameras have mapped the whole world for Google Maps, and you can look and see people standing in their windows with their curtains open, I wonder if that case would have come out differently because we are aware of a more pervasive degree of surveillance. Um, So the most we can say based on jurisprudence now is that there is um, heightened regard for physical invasiveness and physical risk and um, ongoing uh, conceptual lack of clarity and lack of protection for the informational self, which may be more reflective of what we could think of as our truer self. Um, And that... uh, if we want really clear protections, we should legislate it. There's a role for legislation and regulation rather than waiting for the court to decide it piecemeal based on the cases that arise over time, uh, which can have a really, really long lag time as well, by the way, mm-hmm. by the time uh, things come through the courts. So Amanda, there is, as you know, uh, better than I do, there, there is a Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. There is a GINA. Um, uh, I think I just heard you advocate loudly. Maybe it wasn't advocacy. You were teaching and I was learning, but uh, I, I think it was actually advocacy for, for Nina. Uh, do we need a neurophysiologic or neurologic information non-discrimination act? Do we need to legislate very clearly and at least uh, try to allow what many people would hold as, uh, as true and dear, which is, uh, which is privacy of thought? Uh, to and do we need to reduce that, if you will, to legislation? Yes, yes. Oh, I, I, I love that. So I think we absolutely need a NINA. And, um, you know, the National mm. Academies uh, convened working groups uh, for quite some time to come up with a truly thoughtful draft for how genetic information should be protected. That's a wonderful model, not just as a statute, but as a process for what we should be doing with neural data. And so, Lee, if you would like to help me convince uh, the NAS. <laughs> Let's do it. And technologists and physicians who are in the field should be at the table because if it's mm-hmm. imbalanced toward regulators or ethicists or, or lawyers, we ruin everything. Um, it, <laughs> it, you know, it, it won't be as right. Can I ask a, um, what I think of as a depressing question? I, I wonder whether outside of this um, Zoom box or whatever we call it, uh, how much this actual issue resonates elsewhere. I think the the degree to which people have clearly sort of given up their their information uh, is remarkable. Uh, I mean, I do it, <laughs> and I actually worry about it. Um, you know, do we really think that people are going to worry as much as we're worrying? 
And my worry is that people don't. And that's actually going to make all of this much harder. I think people underappreciate how exposed they are giving their data to private companies. But my experience is most people are still aware of the danger of the government peeking into your life because Google and Facebook can't put you in jail. There's there's little recourse when the government starts opening up your mind. I, I think even some of the most anti-regulation, you know, tech CEOs are very, you know, tech companies are very hesitant to give over their priceless data to the government. No one one wants the data to end up. This this is quite sort of some sort of a Rorschach test for where we are on some sort of sociopolitical spectrum. I worry more about industry than I do about the government for various reasons, but that it's, that's a, you know, there's no particular, that's probably more of an emotional thing than anything else. But uh, I think we give up our data both ways, right? We, We give up our data to pretty much everybody now with very little, thought. And it seems hard to me to convince the world that if it becomes super convenient to be able to have a chip in your head that helps you do X, Y, or Z, uh, people's that convenience will trump any uh, desire to maintain some hold on individual information, I suspect. I think that my biggest concern is with military contracts within corporations. I worry about that a great deal. Um, or any kind of government contract within a within a company, um, but I also think that yes, the paradox of privacy, this idea that people give up, give up so many uh, so many of their privacy protections for some sort of consumer benefit, some sort of benefit of a product, is is definitely alive and well, and I think that um, one of the biggest drivers of that paradox is how alluring the technology is, um, what they stand to gain. Um, I've noticed that, you know, I I remember there was this deep skepticism of having audio recorders in your home. Um, like when Amazon and a number of companies started coming out with these smart speakers, people were deeply skeptical of this idea and said that it wouldn't fly. But now lots of people have... Um, Echo Dots or whatever it is, um, Sonos smart speakers, HomePods, whatever it is. Um, and different companies have different commitments to privacy and uh, different uh, methods of data analysis. They can say all they want that they don't analyze data that isn't per- pertinent to, you know, asking Alexa what the weather's like. But um, we know that from you know, other practices of those companies that they don't have that deep a commitment. It's a bit like eating inside a restaurant with your mask off. Um, You're getting the wrong kind of negative feedback. Initially, everyone says, holy shit, I don't want to get COVID. I'm not going to do that. But after you put yourself repeatedly in dangerous situations and don't suffer a consequence, people get more lax, even though the risk is the same. I think it's the same with the smart speaker, you know, that no one kicked in their door um, you know, they didn't see their voice on television and they got the impression that there was less risk associated with the smart speaker than there was when they first feared it. But I think it's it's more about the sort of uh non the sort of non event feedback that, that, that lulls people into complacency with risk. I also think it's an ignorance, uh, a certain kind of ignorance about how the technologies work. It's really difficult to ask someone to 
be an expert on, you know, neural networks and uh, data sharing practices before they buy, you know, a smart speaker. And it will be similarly difficult uh, to say, okay, you want the benefit of this neural technology, but do you know what's required to get the thing that you want where you think a thing and it appears on your computer screen? That's a difficult process and it requires giving up so much. But it's so it's analogous to exactly what Lee was saying before in a way, right? I think that the average person, even the not average person, doesn't really understand the worth, value, and utility of the data they're giving up. Just like we don't really understand what's all embedded in the uh, in the in the neural signals that we are collecting and looking at, we you know people like Lee and I bet a lot that there's a lot more information there, uh, but we don't know what that information is. Similarly, I think people you know our average consumer doesn't really understand the degree to which the fact that their cell phone tracks where they are is actually could be used for any number of things that that they don't even imagine, both as an individual and as a society. Uh, I think it's I think there's a real analogy there to what Lee was talking about before. We seem to be sharing our fears at the moment <laughs> for this moment of the program. So 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 let me share one of my fears, which uh, which is that, and it's not the spiders. You hate spiders, Lee, right? Is that it? Yeah. Well, there's that, and and then there's you know I, I am concerned that the fear. That uh, of the improper use, the improper secondary use of a uh, neurotechnology, uh, the the fears that the technologies once developed might uh, evoke or exacerbate social ills, that those concerns might slow the development of incredibly powerful, useful, and needed neurotechnologies that can restore communication, can restore mobility, and uh, and can help people with any number of neurologic or psychiatric syndromes. So, and that's not to minimize the importance of what we've all been saying, but some part of what we need to do, I think, is to make sure that the technologies that were being developed are used properly, are in the right social context, are, and that we're all aware of how they could be used. But at no moment should that yellow flag slow down what is desperately needed right now. Because when I walk into a neurointensive care unit and there's somebody who was walking and talking yesterday and is unable to move and unable to speak today, we need the neurotechnologies that are being developed right now so that that person can communicate again. And the, the moral imperative there to continue the research that's happening, I think just it, 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 it's strong, it needs to continue. And, uh, it, and conversations like this make sure that when we actually get there, that the technologies are, are going to be used properly. But uh, I just want to, I guess, remind myself, if nobody else, <laughs> that, uh, that these discussions are not intended in any way. Uh, and I certainly hope that they won't uh, slow down the progress that's so important to make. Would you all indulge me uh, by allowing me to ask a question? So... I was giving a talk at a comic convention, which is the probably the most interesting place I've given a talk. Um, and uh, we were doing a, a panel on the future uses of technology, um, and I was there representing the neurotechnologies and the ethical issues therein. One person, uh, after hearing me speak a little bit about these technologies, asked me a very pointed question. And I want to ask you all the same question. Do you see the goal of neurotechnology as to erase or discontinue or fix disability entirely? 
so put it in another way, if neurotechnologies are are extremely successful and there are enough to, you know, meet the needs of many people um, and in a lot of different contexts with a lot of different, uh, you know, disabilities and different um, conditions. Do you think that we're moving toward a world without disability? This is a critical, as you know, this is a critical question and it's been wrestled with, I think most uh, openly and proximally uh, by the community of people with hearing impairment, hearing loss, deafness in the, uh, from the context of cochlear implants. And, uh, and that the push to restore hearing uh, is interpreted and felt more than interpreted is felt by some as an assault on a culture. The, so when that same important breadth of question is applied to the development of, of additional neurotechnologies, cochlear implants is one of them, deep brain stimulators, intracortical brain computer interfaces, spinal uh, stimulating technologies, or any of the others that we might speak of, um, these are options. They are not mandatory. They are not overtly guided by a desire to see them become pervasive. Uh, they're motivated by an extraordinary frustration that we don't have good treatments for many severe neurologic injuries and diseases today. And we are desperate to develop ones. And when I say we, we're speaking about the patients and families who have these disorders. We are looking for solutions. And I think I'm an optimist, I obviously uh, uh, am, am biased, uh, but I think that the technologies that are being developed are going to become powerful, flexible, available, restorative neurotechnologies. I don't think that that is motivated by a bias uh, that, um, that uh, there's a concern that reducing physical disability is by itself wrong. There is uh, the, I think that was a convoluted way of saying that the, the there is, uh, I, it is a really important discussion. There will continue for some time to be some very challenging injuries and disorders that I also hope that we can provide the option of tools that would improve what any individual feels to be an improvement in their own quality of life. Uh, th but now, at no point should any of these technologies be uh, uh, be held up as this is something that you should do so that you can now do something that you uh, were previously able to, but you can't anymore. That's the, the goal is to foster autonomy, to restore autonomy, to allow somebody to make a decision or to complete an action that they currently can't, which includes making the decision not to use that technology. And so that, I think that was a long and inelegant answer to your question. <laughs> I thought it was very elegant and persuasive. Um, Quite. And, and uh, um, deeply thoughtful. Um, so I've thought in a more situated way about disability in the last several years than I had in the past uh, because a friend of mine has a son who has nonverbal quadriplegic cerebral palsy. Mm. And um, through their experience, that's helped me to understand better 
the social determinants of disability and that disability exists in context. It's not just a, a property of physical deficits, but also of how much support you have and, and how you're viewed and treated. Um, this is probably basic to anybody else who had thought more about disability than I unjustifiably had not before. However, his disability has also showed me how heterogeneous and over-inclusive the term disability is. You were speaking about ontologies before. There's a lot that goes in that bucket, disability, that yes. maybe doesn't all belong together. And that this child's severe cerebral palsy, which affects both hemispheres of his brain, um, it causes him such suffering every day that couldn't be ameliorated, ameliorated by any degree of social support, although it could be improved. That's different than somebody who might have the label of disability or protection under the ADA against disability discrimination, who has high functioning Asperger's syndrome, who's simply perhaps neurodiverse, not disabled. Um, and maybe they don't belong in the same group. And, and so uh, BCIs that can help people with categories of disability more involved with suffering um, could be quite distinct than the opportunity to have or the obligation to have a, a BCI for something that we might not think of as a disability in, in five or 10 years or that might actually be a source of somebody's strength. So um, I think it's, it's a really important question that may play out keeping the foundational principles of autonomy and respect that Lee was articulating mm -hmm. that might play out somewhat differently than uh, across different groups. Thank you for sharing that, Amanda. I think there's so many uh, uh, so many topics that you just uh, touched upon in there. One, just to, you know, to start, I, I am optimistic that any number of types of brain-computer interfaces are going to be developed that may uh, become useful uh, and, and, and used uh, by uh, people with cerebral palsy uh, to improve communication and mobility. And, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm optimistic that that will be true. And that leads very quickly to something we haven't had the, the chance to talk about, which is uh, when is the right moment in the life cycle, if you will, to deploy a new neurotechnology, which is really about when does research begin uh, in children? Uh, and uh, this is the, the question I, I've been asked by several uh, families of children uh, with cerebral palsy. Uh, when are we starting? You know, when are we starting to, to ask the questions that will be able to help a child earlier? And that is exactly the right question. It's been wrestled with before with other technologies. It's certainly been wrestled with uh, with cochlear implants. Uh, the uh, which are now uh, far more commonplace. And, uh, and, and Tim, I saw you uh, nodding your head before, so, so please jump in. Uh, the, uh, I, uh, the, the development of these technologies is going to be important. Uh, and when, when do we start the research? When, how do we weigh risks and benefits, uh, particularly this early on in the development uh, of new technologies? Um, and and how do we? Uh, sorry, Matt. Just one more thought. And how do we very carefully make sure uh, that we're being precise in understanding the differences and the implications of different types of disability, uh, just as you were describing cognitive disability, motor disability, disabilities related to mood regulation, 
and uh, and in uh, and differences across a, a spectrum of uh, a neurologic spectrum, as uh, as Amanda you were just describing. Those are really uh, important themes for us all to think about as we try to uh, imagine and hopefully deploy uh, restorative neurotechnologies. I think each of your comments really speak to the imperative need to figure out how culture will intersect with these technologies. Um, Amanda, you've been saying this the entire time. Um, I think we both have. Um, but when it comes to figuring out um, what what the ontologies of disability are, absolutely. Um, and also what cultures will spring up as we navigate the, the use of these neurotechnologies and the distribution of these neurotechnologies. I think it's going to take a lot of work um, to figure out what those cultures look like or what they should look like. I think the example of cochlear implants is an especially uh, important one because there are cultures that are springing up around cochlear implants themselves um, that that are especially interesting to me, right? So I've I've talked to a number of people with cochlear implants um, who are in, uh, who received them at a younger age, and you know, speaking to the distinction between um, between restorative and enhancement uses of technologies uh, that we don't necessarily anticipate, um, several of them have said that now they feel like they have a superpower over deaf people and hearing people. Um, insofar as when they don't want to hear something that someone has to say, they can just turn their hearing off. Or if they want to, um, listen to music unencumbered and, uh, below people's awareness, they can Bluetooth stream their audio to their cochlear implant, which is a thing that people in the cochlear implant devices, uh, manufacturing world have tried to push in this next generation of cochlear implants and i think it's fabulous uh there's nothing more cyberpunk than that i think <laughs> um and so what kinds of what kinds of cultures will crop up around newer forms of neurotechnology and i think that yes the imperative to get these technologies out there for uh the social benefits that they could provide uh, absolutely important, you know, deep brain stimulators for psychiatric conditions. For one, I think we're all familiar with um, um, with Helen Mayberg's uh, early research on um, DBS for depression and how many of the people who participated in those uh, clinical trials or those early studies um, have said that DBS has saved their lives. Um, but then when we do interviews with people who use similar devices, um, we find that the cultures that are springing up around those devices are interesting and troubling. Um, so, for example, we can, my group conducted an interview with a person who said that, um, that they have a parent um, who sort of keeps track of their moods. And when they're not in, a, in the best mood, will say, hey, did you turn your stimulator on today? And so going back to the, the unique issues that come out of neuroethics and neurotechnology, this idea that we have that kind of access to a person's neurological state 
and that we can alter it um, with some level of immediacy that we haven't had before. Um, what kinds of what kinds of relationships will that will form around those technologies around those capabilities? We don't know yet, and it's just going to be very important for us to keep an eye out and. Uh, you know, build relationships with the groups of people who will use these technologies so that we can better anticipate how we will change cultures because we will. And um, it's imperative that we um, do that cautiously. Lee, you brought up something really interesting just before the break, which was there are a lot of uncertain and maybe low probability negative effects of developing BCI. But there are also some very kind of near-term outcome, healthcare outcomes that, that are, are coming with, you know, deep brain stimulation right now and, and, you know, with early kind of brain gate work. And I'm curious how everyone thinks, of how do we balance the kind of near-term positives and the kind of long-term negatives? Because obviously, I mean, just to give an example, there are negatives of refrigeration technology, you know. The chlorofluorocarbons used in refrigerators leak and cause holes in the ozone. They have a big carbon footprint. There are a lot of like knock-on effects to having refrigeration, but it's also one of the most important health advances in, in the history of human keeping food cold before you eat it. You could say the same thing about uh, vaccination or, you know, sort of clean water and sewage. There have been a lot of really big advances that had knock-on kind of secondary effects and um, obviously, we're glad that we went through with those developments. And so how do we, like, I think many people, myself, probably, Lee, you know, we think BCI technology and, and neurotechnologies more general are a really big medical technology that'll have a primary effect that is, is very good. And how do we, how do we balancing that against some of the things we've talked about? Can I just jump in and say that I don't think that Anything we've said so far should or will result in a barrier to progress or innovation. I don't think that's the case. I think there's a tendency to think of neuroethics as a kind of policing activity. Um, and I'm just here to say, and I think it's very important to say, that I don't imagine myself as an ethics cop. Um, it's not my job to go into people's laboratories and tell them to stop doing research. Um, and I think Lee knows this about me personally, but I want to say to all the listeners out there that, you know, the, the work of neuroethics isn't to say, stop doing this research, unless it's egregious, unless there, is a cert unless there are certain moral boundaries that, that the research crosses or the product crosses, um, that's when a person should be told to stop doing that research. But I don't think that's where we are. I think that where we are is at a turning point where we can choose to learn from the mistakes of past of the past from adjacent technologies similar situations um, and things that we know about social inequity uh, racial justice um, um, disability communities and what they want um, uh, the lessons of of research methods that we know exist like community-based participatory research um, resources that that are underutilized, um, like the knowledge of all the communities that would use the technologies that we want to see succeed. Um, and if we make use of all of those resources, or we build the communities that we need to build uh, to see progress, 
And then that's just a different form of progress. It's not, you know, stymied progress. It's a reconceptualization of progress um, such that it's equitable, just, and so on. Um, so I think, yeah, like how do you manage or how do you, um, how do you balance between the short-term benefits and uh, while also staving off the long-term harms? Um, you just do things the right way in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I, and I think that, you know, to, to, to amplify, I think what Tim is saying is exactly right. And to go even further with it, um, by thinking of these harms, by thinking of these issues, by starting to come up with ideas like Nina and things like that, by, by having this all out in the open early, uh, I think it actually has the opposite. It doesn't stymie the research. It actually accelerates it or it accelerates the utility. It accelerates the adoption because then we don't have to worry that we've done something in a way that people are going to review as uh, deleterious or problematic or what have you. And so the adoption will be faster. The, the uh, acceptance when it's done appropriately will be better. We'll get to the communities that might not otherwise be willing to look at it because it's been done in this way and these issues have been dealt with. So I think there's actually a, a, a positive and accelerant by actually having these kinds of discussions and looking at these problems and thinking about them ahead of time. Yeah, I, I hope so. And I agree. And I, I describe myself as very tech positive. Um, one thing that I like about these conversations is that I think they help us look at areas where we perhaps should be activists beyond technology and that the social problems we're identifying as potentially then having ramifications throughout the use of technology really are social problems that need addressing. The over-medication of kids in foster care, particularly kids of color in foster care, that's not a drug development problem. We could identify that problem and it shouldn't stifle pharma innovation. But if we're aware and conscious, if working within drug development, that that's how these agents might wind up being used, maybe that pushes us individually and our institutions to engage with those social dimensions of the problem for how we think our, your, not mine, inventions may be used downstream. They're yours too. You're part of it. It's a community. That's right. Well, thank you all for your time. I, I think this was really helpful, and I and I hope that more comes of this. Maybe it's Nina, or maybe it's just more conversations with all of us. And I I look forward to uh, when I can see you all in person, uh, and 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 meet you at the real. It'll happen one day. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much. Great. Yeah, it's great discussion. And wonderful hearing all of your perspectives, Tim, Sid, Lee. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to hang out with y'all, and this was great. Yeah. So...